I do want to give uh, you guys, I do have a couple of announcements before we get to the service. I want to give you an update uh, uh, on, um, on my wife, Dana. Uh, many of you got an email uh, in the middle of the night, um, had to take her to the uh, to hospital. She's got low hemoglobin levels. Uh, actually, they're pretty, they're dangerously low uh, to the point where uh, she needs to get uh, some blood transfusions. And, uh, and she's getting those <clears throat> right now, actually, as we, as we speak. And, uh, and so, um, and then they'll probably keep her uh, for at least uh, another night uh, as they check some other things out with her. So um, just thank you, thank you for your prayers. Uh, already got text uh, coming in and messages uh, showing your support. So thank you so much for that, church. I really do uh, appreciate that. Um, also, um, we will not be having a, a post-sermon discussion today. Uh, as we have the past few weeks, because I actually have a little pre-sermon discussion that I need to have uh, with you. Uh, very important announcement. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to briefly discuss where we are at with the reopening of the church facilities for corporate <clears throat> worship. Now, this is a conversation that is being had in churches all over the country right now. And as your elders and deacons have begun discussing this among ourselves, we thought uh, it good to include you in on that conversation by inviting you to give input in regards to when you feel ready to meet again and what, if any kind of safety guidelines you would expect us to have in place in light of COVID-19. And so I want to thank those of you who took the time to fill out that survey last week. And the one common sentiment among the majority of our congregation is a readiness to return to corporate worship, the first opportunity we give you for that. And I'm happy to announce that we are aiming, God willing, to get back to public services next Sunday. I'll have more to say about that in a moment. But perhaps the biggest takeaway for me from the survey results was that in our own little congregation, there is a wide variety of opinion in regards to the sense of the threat, <clears throat> the level of concern if we resume services, <clears throat> and appropriate guidelines uh, what appropriate guidelines we ought to put in place initially. Uh, wide variety of opinion on that in our congregation. And, and so it is evident to me that no matter what we decide to do next week for our gathering, there is just no way to accommodate every person's preferences. Every member of Harbin's uh, in the next few weeks is going to have to set aside at least some preferences for the sake of considering what's important for others. But uh, after prayerfully considering that survey and consulting with Par uh, Pastor Jared and our deacons, uh, we have put together some guidelines that will address the top concerns for the majority of our congregation. And I I'll get to that in a moment. But first, in light of these things, uh, as Pastor Jared and I were discussing this last week, we agreed that there definitely is a risk in our congregation coming back together. There definitely is a threat to the well-being of the members of our church. And the main threat to our church <clears throat> is not a virus. <clears throat> and it's not government restrictions. And it's not political leaders and whether they're responding to this in a way that you approve of. The scriptures warn us that the church's deadliest battle is not in the physical realm. Our main battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the satanic powers that seek to harm us because we are the bride of Christ. Satan can't hurt Christ, and so the next best thing he can do is go for his wife. And I'm dead serious about this. The Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. Uh, this is what he does, and he's on the prowl. 
And we've learned in our Ephesians sermon series that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is on display for the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places to see. And believe me, the devil does not want to see that. The last thing he wants to see is Harbin's church reflecting God's wisdom and demonstrating the true power of the gospel, a gospel that reconciles us to God and, and to one another and makes us family and unites us together, tearing down dividing walls and making us one new man, as Ephesians 2 says. Devil does not want us to want those realities to be seen in us. And so one of the biggest threats to Harbin's church right now is anything that disrupts that gospel unity that we have spent years cultivating. And the responsibility is on us and the power of the Spirit to, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Um, as we are confronted with differences of opinion on how to think about and handle a return to corporate gatherings during a pandemic, let's have in the forefront of our minds uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So if you are, if you end up being tempted <clears throat> to grumble <clears throat> because you feel like maybe our policies are too strict, or or there, or you maybe you think they're not strict enough. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love does not insist on its own way. As we navigate the challenges of a church filled with brothers and sisters who have different perspectives and concerns regarding how best to honor the Lord during corporate worship in the midst of a pandemic, let's remember that Romans 14 says to not quarrel over opinions, over disputable matters, uh, and to not judge or despise our brother or sister who thinks differently on disputable matters. Because Paul writes, uh, in Romans 14, that the kingdom of God isn't ultimately about these disputable matters and whether or not we agree on them. Instead, he writes that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And he concludes by saying, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul expects, uh, expects that to happen in a congregation filled with mature, loving Christians who don't always see things from the same perspective, but who all equally want to honor the Lord. And if we're tempted to complain because something because something someone else prefers will be put into practice, but something you prefer isn't happening in regards to our corporate gatherings, then I challenge us, if we feel that way, I challenge us to joyfully and zealously embrace, receive, and live by Romans 15, verses 1 and 2, which says that we have an obligation not to please ourselves. Let us each, let us please his neighbor for his own, for his good, to build him up. So if Harmon's church, in the power of the Spirit, can move forward in successfully living out those biblical principles, and I believe that the devil will flee from this church and find easier prey. So let's be on guard, ready for warfare, not against each other, but against the devil. And we can do it if we stand firm in the strength of the Lord. COVID-19 is a moment where our church could be struck a mighty blow and take a significant step backwards and even be crippled. That's true. But I also believe that this is a 
a key moment in the history of our church to grow even stronger in the gospel and gospel love and unity as the things that we have learned in theory over the years, we now have an opportunity to actually put into practice. So with all of that said, with all the, the, the kind of the biblical precepts said and, and put in our minds now um, in regards to some of the guidelines regarding what life together is going to initially look like on Sunday mornings, there were four suggestions that over half the respondents were in favor of. And so uh, putting these practices in place is a good start and trying to consider what's important to the greatest percentage of folks in our church. Now, the top suggestion we got was discouraging handshakes for now. Uh, most of our respondents were in favor of this. Um, I, I, and I, I suppose likewise, obviously we would discourage hugs for now. Now, it's gonna be tough for some of you now, now, if you are a handshaker, you can always just ask someone if they are shaking hands. And, uh, and, and if, they, if they are, then have at it. If, they, if they're not, don't get mad. Uh, don't be offended. Seek not only your interest, but also the interest of others. I was at a, a wedding yesterday, and I, I shook some people's hands, and I went to shake someone else's hand, and, and, he, and he was, you know, just indicated he was refraining from that. I wasn't mad. I wasn't offended. No big deal uh, at all. Um, secondly, li uh, likewise, just as many folks suggested uh, hand sanitizer, and uh, and we'll see if the church can secure hand sanitizer and make some available. Uh, thirdly, over half the responders believed social distancing was important. I'll consult with our deacons about how we're going to make that happen. Different churches are doing this differently. Uh, some churches are adjusting their seating. Uh, some are simply encouraging a set of empty chairs between families. Uh, families, of course, sitting together. Uh, we'll, we'll get that figured out by next week. I think the trickiest part of social distancing will be right before and after the service. And, and so my suggestion is that people who feel the need to social distance simply just have the freedom to go right to their seat in the beginning of the service, maybe show up right before the service begins to help you maintain that distance if, that, if that's what makes you most comfortable. And then simply just leave right after the service and just smile and wave to folks as you leave without fear of offending anyone. Uh, and then while at the same time, we'll let others uh, have the freedom to interact as they are comfortable with. Again, with, my expectation is that no, no one is judging anyone for operating differently. Uh, the other top suggestion um, was that of propping open doors. That's easy and, uh, and we can do that. Oh, and uh, probably the bathroom question is a big question on people's minds. Regarding bathrooms, we're not planning on restricting access, and we're just going to instead let people make their own choices uh, depending on their personal risk tolerance. Um, in regards to children, kids are the biggest X factor in all of this. The bigger the family and the younger the children, the harder it's going to be for a family to have their kids do any sort of social distancing. So parents... All I can say to that right now, do your best, but I am not interested in policing that. Uh, and, and again, uh, any concerned folks who, who feel the need to social distance can simply leave uh, immediately after the service without judgment, without concern for wandering kids or, or anything like that. Um, uh, regarding masks, that's optional. If you feel that that would be a helpful, necessary protection for you, then I would encourage you to wear one, but it's not mandatory. Um, also, we will be paying our cleaning service extra to do weekly deep cleanings of our facility, including the wiping down of doorknobs and handles just to sanitize things as much as we can after we use the building.
And, uh, and finally, there will be no nursery for the time being and no Sunday school classes. Now, the whole Sunday school thing, the, the, the timing actually works out. We were originally planning on taking our regular summer break from classes later this month anyway, and we're almost there. So we're, we'll just start that break a little bit early. Um, so for now, we'll just be doing our main corporate worship at 1045. Now, some of you might feel that these restrictions are not enough, uh, that they're a little looser than what you're comfortable with, and that for now, you think it's best to stay home uh, for a little while longer for the sake of you and your family's health. If that's you, uh, I want you to feel the freedom to do that. Uh, and uh, or, or if you just think that the whole thing with, with kids and, and stuff is just going to make it more difficult and you feel like I, I'm just going to stay home for now, I, I get it. I understand that. Uh, and we're going to continue to offer our Sunday morning live stream, and I want you to take advantage of that. No one's going to judge you or be upset with you for making those decisions. And uh, and if you're older and immune compromised, uh, this is something that you're going to want to carefully weigh and, and, and maybe, again, uh, just take advantage of the, the live stream for now. Now, on the, on the flip side, there may be others of you who feel like the restrictions are too much. <clears throat> and I want to remind you again to consider the interest of others, to live, as Romans says, not to please yourself, but in such a way that will build up others. And if setting aside a few of our preferences will help some of our brothers and sisters actually be with us on Sunday morning, if that's what it takes, we should rejoice in the opportunity to think of them and to be eager to help them to join us. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that this is not a perfect system. Uh, better ideas may emerge later on as far as how to do this. Mistakes are probably going to be made along the way. And y'all, it's going to be strange and awkward. But uh, it's going to be less strange and less awkward than an empty building on Sunday morning with everyone in their PJs singing and watching a preacher on a tiny screen. This is a, a step, a baby step in the right direction. And I don't know how long we'll do things this way. This is brand new to all of us. We are all figuring this out as we go along. And so in the meantime, I just want to encourage us all to extend lots of grace and lots of patience with one another as we figure this out together. James chapter one says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And in the spirit of what I just read, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now about this. Father in heaven, first of all, we do rejoice we rejoice that in these strange and unusual times, not just now, but in the weeks ahead, as we, as we uh, continue to figure this out, in, in this trial, uh, this unusual trial, uh, I, we thank you that you are working, uh, that, that, uh, that the testing uh, that you're putting us through is producing something that is good in us. And we look forward to seeing the fruit that you're aiming to produce in us through this. Father, we acknowledge that we are not wise <laughs> apart from you. And we'll talk more about that in the sermon in just a, just a moment. Uh, and, and, and it's especially in a situation like this that none of us have been through before. And, uh, and we need your help big time. And, and so we pray that you would uh, dispense upon Harbin's church your wisdom and your guidance and your discernment 
And we trust you that you're going to be gracious and liberal and pouring out that wisdom to us in the days ahead. And we look forward to seeing how you're going to work. Father, protect us from the schemes of the devil and help us to come through this stronger and more united and more mature and more godly and more loving than ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I feel like I just preached a sermon and that we should just uh, take up a collection right now or something. That 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 was the, the pre-sermon sermon. That was the, the warm-up. And, and now it's time for the actual uh, message. So please take your Bibles and turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. In John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, you have Christian and his friend Hopeful journeying towards the celestial city, which represents heaven. And to get to heaven, they have to stay on the narrow path and not divert to the right or to the left. And at one point, the path gets very difficult and their feet are getting sore from the rough road. Well, Christian discovers that near their path, just over the fence, was another path that seemed a lot easier and a lot more pleasant to walk on called Bypath Meadow. And so Christian suggests that they go on that path. Uh, the, and, and to do that, though, they're going to have to leave the road and go over the fence. But, but Christian says it's okay because Bypath Meadow was running parallel to the little path that they had been on. And so they would be going in the same direction. So they climbed over the fence and continued on their journey. And lo and behold, the path is indeed easier on their feet. And as they go, they see someone else up ahead named Vain Confidence who said he was on his way to the celestial city too. But eventually it became dark and they lost sight of him and vain confidence, unable to see clearly, falls into a pit and Christian and hopeful they can't see him. They can just hear him groaning in the distance. And to make matters worse, a violent storm comes upon them and they could not get back to the proper path, the path they were supposed to be on, the path that that the that the that God wanted them to be on. And in the morning, they're captured by an evil giant named Despair. Well, if you want to know what happens next, you're going to have to read the book for yourself because I don't want to spoil the whole thing for you. But here, Bunyan vividly illustrates how easy it is for a Christian to lose their way and bring on themselves great trouble if they aren't careful how they walk. And that is the Apostle Paul's concern here in Ephesians 5 as we uh, pick up where we left off Last week in, in verse 15, Paul says in verse 15, look carefully then at how you walk. Pay attention, be vigilant, be mindful of every step you take. Now, walk is a metaphor for your way of life. You're not just to drift aimlessly through life. There is to be a thoughtful intentionality in regards to everything you do, every choice you make, every decision, because identity matters. Uh, Paul has been explaining that we who are believers have been rescued from a world and a way of life that was evil, that was anti-God, dominated by our selfish desires and priorities, where essentially we put ourselves at the center of all things. But when we came to Christ, our old self was put aside, and our new identity is now bound up in being a part of God's family and God's people. And so our new lifestyle is to flow from that new identity. Uh, the, the theological truths of redemption described by Paul in chapters 1 through 3 are actually supposed to be lived out practically in day-to-day -day life as described 
in chapters four through six. And Paul keeps coming back to this concept of walking. In uh, chapter four, verse one, he says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Uh, in chapter four, verse 17, he says uh, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In chapter five, verse two, he says, walk in love. And in verse eight, he says, walk as children of light. Be who you really are. You were once darkness. Now you are light. You used to be self-centered. Now you're to be God-centered. Uh, life used to be about serving you. Now it's about serving him and others. And now he says in verse 15, look carefully at how you walk. Paul knows that the Christian life doesn't come easy or automatically. If you are and so if you're constantly being beat up spiritually, constantly stumbling and falling on your face over and over again, falling down like Mr. Vain Confidence, uh, if you find yourself spiritually stuck like Christian and hopeful on Bypath Meadow, one reason is because you're not looking carefully at how you walk. And so now Paul, after showing you examples of what the Christian life looks like, uh, now gets into the hows of the Christian life in this section which will be climaxed in the next chapter uh, when he takes us deep into the topic of spiritual warfare. That's ultimately direction we're headed in in this book. That's where we've been going since chapter one. And, and so in the next chapter, Paul's going to pull back the curtain on the dark spiritual powers that are beckoning us to leave the right path uh, because they want us to lose our way on Bypath Meadow. But Paul is here to help us with some instruction. And so let's see what he has to say about the careful walk. We are in Ephesians chapter five, Ephesians five, and let's read together, starting at verse 15, and uh, we'll just read the next couple of verses uh, through verse 17. And the apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Father, bless the reading and the hearing of your word this morning and my exposition of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are three particular ways that Paul tells us how we as a church can walk in a way that will keep us on the proper path. And the first thing is that we are to walk carefully. Paul says, look carefully at how you walk. That phrase, look carefully, in the original language conveys the idea of accuracy and precision, uh, focused on even the minute details of our walk. Now, recently I watched a, um, uh, the documentary Free Solo uh, about Alex Honnold, uh, who is a free solo rock climber who scales monstrous natural rock walls without equipment without safety gear, without ropes. He just has his hands and his feet and the clothes on his back. And the documentary chron uh, chronicles his climb up um, El Capitan, which is a 3,000-foot vertical cliff. And he has to be extremely careful and extremely precise regarding every place his foot goes, every place his hand holds on to, some spots he can just barely grab with the tip of, of his fingers, other spots he can't even get his entire feet on. Every move of his body is calculated. Every move is meant to be extremely intentional and accurate and precise or else he falls. If you're afraid of heights, this this you may not want to watch this movie, it might make you nervous. This is not a sport. Where you, where you can 
be successful if you just casually charge upwards without paying very close attention to what you're doing, without looking carefully at how you walk and how you climb. Because to be casual about it will bring disaster. And the Apostle Paul is telling you that in the exact same way, he's saying walk accurately, scrutinize, carefully scrutinize the way uh, that you live. Be intentional about how you live. Walk carefully. John Stott writes that everything worth doing requires care. We all take trouble over the things which seem to us uh, to matter. Our job, our education, our home and family, our hobbies, our dress and appearance. So as the Christian, we must take trouble over our Christian life. We must treat it as, a, as the serious thing that it is. Now, Paul's point about all of his practical instructions in Ephesians is not obey these commands to become a Christian. Uh, do all these things uh, to get saved. Instead, the point here throughout this practical section of Ephesians is that since we are already Christians, having already received Jesus as Lord and Savior, having exchanged our old identity for the new, we are now responsible to live in a new way but it requires intentionality and care. Proverbs chapter two, which Jordan read uh, earlier this morning, describes two different pathways to walk down. Uh, the wicked forsake the right path and the end is disastrous. But in contrast, Solomon writes to his son in Proverbs 2.20, you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. And so Solomon paints a picture of a traveler who is walking down the road and he is watching where his feet go to make sure that he stays on the right road, not diverting to the right or to the left, because only when we give careful attention to how we live our lives, we actually live the lives we ought to live as Christians. And on the flip side, if we're careless and not intentional, we set ourselves up for spiritual disaster. Now, that all begs the question, how do we do that? How exactly do we live carefully in such a way that it produces the kind of life that is good for us and pleasing to God? Well, Paul begins to answer that in the second part of verse 15. We are told to walk with wisdom, walk with wisdom. Paul says, look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, when some people think of a wise person, they they think of some sort of elite mystical Yoda-like guru somewhere in the Himalayas who is meditating in the lotus position and he is throwing out pithy one-liners. That's not wisdom. The Bible's very clear about what wisdom is. And one of the ways that it teaches us what wisdom is, is by teaching us its opposite. What, what's the opposite uh, of wisdom? If you're not wise, what are you? You're a fool. And so when Paul says, don't walk as unwise, he's essentially saying, don't be a fool. And in the Bible, fool is not an intellectual category. It's a moral category. The fool is someone who thinks very highly of himself detached from God. He has rejected God's wisdom because he's confident in his own wisdom. And so the fool is unteachable because he already knows everything. He, he's stubborn because he already has all the answers. The fool is self-referential. He is arrogant. He is at the center. In a nutshell, the fool is full of himself. Now, if that's what a fool is, uh, to be wise is the exact opposite. Wisdom, likewise, is not about intellect. 
Instead, the wise person recognizes that detached from God, he has no wisdom. Uh, the wise person is teachable. The wise person seeks not to be self-referential, but to instead have God at the center of all things, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom doesn't start with you. It starts with God. And so the wise man will see reality the way God sees reality. He, he's going to interpret every aspect of his life through the lens of the wisdom of God so that the defining reality of his life is the wisdom of God. And that wisdom controls his decisions. Uh, it controls his perspective. It controls how he sees the big things in life. And it governs how he sees the little things in life to the point where every hour, even every second is governed by the wisdom of God. And that's why Paul says in verse 16 that one of the manifestations of the careful walk is a wise lifestyle that is making the best use of the time. Now, this, this verse uh, is uh, it's not a verse about how to have a more productive day in the office. <laughs> when he says making the most of your time, making the best use of your time. This is not about raw time management, although some people use this verse in that way. That phrase, making the best use of the time, in the original language, could say redeeming the time. Some translations put it that way. Now, that's interesting. Redeeming. Re redemption is marketplace language used to describe a purchase. Uh, it was a word uh, used in the first century slave market uh, to, to redeem someone that was a slave. It's the word used for Jesus Christ purchasing us or redeeming us with his blood. Jesus took us who were evil and he has redeemed us and changed us. And now we, be we become something useful and profitable for his kingdom. And the idea here of making the best use of the time isn't about how to organize your schedule at work so you can get more projects done. God has something way bigger in mind than that. And Paul gives us a clue of what he means at the end of verse 16. He says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, when Paul speaks of the days being evil, that is eschatological language that reflects his perspective that we are living in the last days. Scripture divides all of reality into two great periods, two great epochs of time. There's this present age, which is characterized by evil, by a universe in disorder and in rebellion against God. And the second great period is known as the age to come. And that's characterized by a perfected and ordered universe that is manifestly subjected to God. In fact, Paul alludes to this in the beginning of, of the book. In Ephesians 1.21, he writes that Christ is exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And the understanding there is that in the age to come, the authority and dominion of Jesus will be fully manifest and obvious in a way that it is not now. That's the age to come, the age of Messiah, where he will make all that is wrong in the universe right. And the great key, the great hinge moment or turning point in redemptive history was the cross. It was the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus on the cross sets the stage for a redeemed people, redeemed from their sins, yes, but also, as Paul writes in Galatians 1, redeemed from this present evil age. 
Because the cross is the cornerstone of God's plan that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1.10, a plan that when it comes to full fruition, will find all things in the universe united to or reconciled in Christ, properly related to or submitted to Christ. That's the age to come. And so the cross is a signal that the days of this present evil age are numbered, and therefore we are now in the last days. Uh, because after the cross, the one remaining major climactic event on God's redemptive timetable is the return of Jesus Christ. But until then, we live in an overlap of ages. On the one hand, we're still in this present evil age, and, and, um, and yet at the same time, 1 Corinthians 7.31 says that the present form of this world is passing away. But on the other hand, even though the scripture tells us the kingdom of God is coming, it also tells us that the kingdom is already here. Jesus inaugurated the coming kingdom when he came to earth 2,000 years ago, and so the things of the kingdom have already been set into motion. And so you and I live in a very interesting time compared to the Old Testament saints as we live in an overlap between uh, two kingdoms, two ages. One is here and is fading, and one is here and is coming. And, and because the two kingdoms are opposite, you know what that means? Warfare. And it's against that big cosmic eschatological backdrop that we are to read verse 16, redeeming the time, or as one translation puts it, uh, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. This is a time of warfare for the people of God. And we redeem the time by using our time for God's purposes and God's glory as we wage, wage warfare against the evil powers and principalities that hold the world in darkness. So as an army advances forward claiming land for their king, so we as God's people move forward claiming every second in this evil age for God and his purposes. And, and Paul is saying here that that's wisdom. That's the, the wisest use of your time. Uh, the foolish person doesn't care about such things and just spends all of his time in self-centered pursuits. But Paul says we aren't to be unwise, but wise. And so John MacArthur writes that outside of purposeful disobedience to God's word, the most spiritually foolish thing a Christian can do is to waste time and opportunity, to fritter away his life in trivia and half-hearted service to the Lord. So, what, is it, what does it look like to uh, practically to redeem the time? Well, certainly it means using your time in a way that benefits your own personal walk and growth with God to make yourself more useful to the kingdom. And there are small, simple ways to begin redeeming the time. One of the best things you can do is walk away from uh, uh, the Internet or, or TV and pick up your Bible and feed your soul, uh, shunning sin, shunning temptation, uh, pursuing personal holiness, not just for your own benefit, but so that you can spiritually strengthen your family and your church. Again, making yourself increasingly fit for service for God's kingdom. That's a way to redeem the time. Another way to redeem the time in these evil days is to pour pour yourself out for the good work for for good works for other believers. Uh, Galatians six ten says, "So then, as we have opportunity." As we have the time, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Certainly one of the best ways to redeem the time is to pray. 
John Flavel says that the devil is aware that one hour of close fellowship, uh, one hour of hearty conversation with God in prayer is able to pull down what he has been contriving and building many a year. And Martin Luther <clears throat> says that, he, he wrote that, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. <laughs> now, isn't that the exact opposite of how so many of us view prayer? We think, well, I have so much to do that I can't spend any time in prayer. And so prayer falls by the wayside and we charge forward in our own strength because we think prayer is a waste of time. And maybe we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do it if we get around to it sometime. And yet that's foolishness. That's the false wisdom of this world that is self-referential and self-reliant. And that kind of pride is always the prelude to a fall. Uh, another very important way to redeem the time is through evangelism and representing Jesus Christ to those who are not believers. Uh, let's not forget that Paul's instructions here come on the heels of what we looked at last week in the prior verses that urged us to walk as children of light, shining the light of Christ in a dark world so that those lost in darkness may be awakened to Christ as we have been. In Colossians chapter 4, uh, which is a great parallel passage to uh, where we're at in Ephesians, uh, Paul writes there, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. That's the exact same phrase in the Greek as in Ephesians 5, redeeming the time. And then in Colossians 4, Paul tells you how you can redeem the time. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And so the question is, how are you using your time? Are you making the most of the opportunities given to you? Are you structuring your life and your time in a way uh, that is about God and not you? And how much of your time is consumed by entertainment and triviality uh, in worldly temporal pursuits compared to godly kingdom pursuits? By the way, I'm not saying that we can't have times of R&R &R and entertainment and, and lighthearted fun. Don't hear me say any of that. That's not the problem. Uh, the problem, at least with me, is that sometimes... That's all I want to do with my time. All I want is R&R. &R. All I want is comfort. And so instead of making the most of my time, my time is squandered on lesser things. And to give ourselves and our time over to those lesser things is to be foolish. I'm reminded of the, the parable that Jesus uh, told in Luke 12 of the rich man whose land produced so plentifully that he had no place to store his abundance of crops. And so he decided to tear down his barns and build bigger ones and just invest his time into accumulating more and more goods so that he could just live and live in ease and luxury for the rest of his life. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, why was he a fool? because he wasted the time given to him. Uh, not using his wealth and his possessions for kingdom purposes to serve God and to serve others, but he used it all to serve himself. That's wasted time. It's a wasted life. And the Christian is to live in an opposite way, not in a way uh, to maximize earthly comforts and pleasure, uh, but to make the most of his time for the days are evil. Because as, as Rick Phillips once said, uh, we're not to view the world as a Disneyland tailored for fun, but as a spiritual battlefield 
That's why in Ephesians 6, Paul's going to tell us to suit up, to get dressed for battle. Because the dark spiritual forces at work who rule over this present evil age have designed this age in such a way to pull you and everyone away from God. Uh, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Uh, Ephesians 6, 12 and 13 says, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And the evil day sounds a lot like what Paul is, is talking about in Ephesians 5, the days being evil. And so the battle is won by those who remain vigilant and are constantly on wartime footing. Uh, Ethan and I are watching this great documentary on World War II, and we just watched an episode the other day about the Battle of Britain. And as the German air forces kept pushing into English skies, the British Royal Air Force pilots had to constantly fight, uh, doing four or five combat missions a day, maybe getting a couple hours of sleep on the side and then having to get right back at it. And it was only through their determination to stay on a wartime footing and keep fighting on uh, that, that eventually led them to win the day. And so for those British pilots, as far as the war was concerned, they used their time wisely. They made the most of their opportunity. They denied themselves other comforts and pleasures and pursuits, and in doing so, experienced victory. And so it is with the believer, uh, not just individually, but especially as a church, we, Harbin's Church, must consider ourselves always on wartime footing. A lot of Christians and a lot of churches don't think that way. A lot of churches are all about experiencing a Christianized version of the comfortable American dream and just coasting to heaven. But as God's people, we're to participate in God's global purpose of expanding the manifestation of his kingdom rule in our hearts, in our church, and in the world through the preaching of the gospel, seeing more and more people delivered from this present evil age and becoming citizens of the glorious age to come. Because redeeming the time is not about workplace pr productivity, it's about cosmic warfare and the imminent victory of Christ through his people. So we are to walk carefully by walking with wisdom uh, and, and redeeming or making the most use of our time, the best use of our time, but also the careful walk of wisdom is demonstrated when we walk with understanding. This is my final point, when we walk with understanding. Uh, verse 17, Paul says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, uh, the question about what God's will is, is one that often comes up as I pastor and counsel folks. It's a very common, common question. How can I know God's will? Should I marry this person or not? Should I take this job in Pittsburgh or should I stay put? Should I go to this college or that one or, or should I go at all? Those are the kinds of choices that cause Christians a lot of angst and a lot of grief. And we spend a lot of mental and emotional energy on those things. And, and often people are so afraid to make a decision because they're scared of botching it and, and messing up God's will if the, as if that's possible. But the Bible never promises to reveal those kinds of details to you. And the Bible actually never tells you to get uptight about not knowing his secret will. 
his secret will, like if you ever will get married or if you'll change job, a job in five years or, or the day of your death. His secret will are those details in life that God is orchestrating and bringing about, but he has simply chosen not to reveal those things in advance in the Bible. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So they don't belong to you. They belong to him. So don't fret over it. The secret things belong to him. But the second half of that verse goes on to say, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So the things that are revealed are the things that he has spoken to us through his word, through the scriptures. This 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 word right here is his revealed will. And this is what he wants us to be primarily concerned about that we may do all the words of this law, that we may obey and follow him. And, and by the way, as, as, we, as we do that, as we seek first uh, the kingdom of God, um, uh, we, we are actually well poised to, to make wise, godly decisions in regards to those other matters that, that uh, trouble us uh, so much. Shall I take this job or that job or live here or there or who should I marry or, or, or those sorts of things. But, but uh, uh, scripture is, is, um, is constantly pushing us back to, to scripture and, and to focus uh, more on the things that he has revealed uh, as opposed to the things that are secret. And so this is what Paul is getting at when he says that the wise person is the, is the one who is, uh, he, he's walking carefully by understanding what the will of the Lord is. Uh, the wise person must understand the teachings and the principles and the precepts in God's word, not just cognitively, but for the purpose of living them out. And so Proverbs 10, 8 says that the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. The wise person is going to pay attention to God's ways, but the fool is babbling, the proverb says. He's babbling. He's enamored with his own words. He's so busy talking that he won't listen, and so he doesn't understand what the will of the Lord is, and that leads to his ruin. The fool doesn't take God's will seriously because the fool judges right from wrong according to his own standards because he's self-referential and he's not God-centered. That's why Proverbs 12:15 says that the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So the fool then will totally despise Paul's exhortation to look carefully at how he walks. Fool doesn't pay attention to those things, but instead he charges forward, trusting his own wisdom. And this is how all sinful humans naturally are. Uh, I love Jeremiah's description of this in Jeremiah 8, 6. He says, no man relents of his evil. Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. That's a good description. That's the fool just charging recklessly forward solely on the basis of instinct and feelings. Well, I feel right. This, this feels good. This, this, this feels like the way that I should go. And so I'm going to do that. And then, and then, so the fool becomes his own authority. Now, even though biblically the fool is the unbeliever, we have to remember that Paul here is writing to, uh, to believers. He's, he's writing to us because even Christians uh, because we're not yet perfect, you and I still have a, an enormous capacity for massive foolishness. Y'all, I have a massive list of accumulated foolishness in my own life. My wife can tell you all about that if you have several days. And I've seen much foolishness in Christians in general. People who should know better. 
And yet, people who walk foolishly, uh, they're not consulting the word. They're not paying careful attention to how they walk. They're not really interested in understanding what God's will is for their lives. It's one of the most frustrating things for me to see as a pastor. When someone comes to me for counsel and, and I show them what the word of God says and they leave my office and they do the exact opposite and go forward like a horse plunging headlong into battle or like a free solo climber just rushing up the cliff, paying no heed to what his hands and feet are doing. And so <clears throat> disaster then is imminent. And and the reason why people do this, the reason why people disregard God's will is because they're trusting in their own wisdom, because the way that they want to go seems right to them, and it makes more sense to them in the moment than God's word does. And they become self-deceived, like Christian and hopeful in Pilgrim's Progress, hopping the fence, going go, uh, going down by, by Path Meadow because it seemed easier and it seemed more sensible and pleasant than the way that God had called them to walk. Think about this. That, that adulterous affair always seems right in the moment because staying in the marriage is hard and this other person is my real soulmate and they love me and they're nice to me and, and, and it just seems that this would be a more pleasant path. Really, it would be best for everyone. Never mind what the Bible says about these matters. After all, God wants me to be happy, right? And yet in the end, there are broken hearts and kids dealing with gut-wrenching pain and deep wounds and guilt and, and the destruction of an entire home. But it seemed right. That little white lie always seems right in the moment. <clears throat> because to tell the truth would be a hard thing and feelings would be hurt and 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 the day would just be a lot easier if I just told if I just told this little lie. Never mind what the Bible says about honesty and integrity. After all, God wants me to be a peacemaker, and this little lie will help me keep the peace. And yet, then you carry around that, that sense of shame because of that lie. And that unconfessed sin wounds your soul and weakens your relationship with God and others. And, and, and then the next lie becomes easier and the next one easier. And, and when the lies are finally exposed, all of the hurt feelings and conflict you were trying to avoid is magnified a hundredfold. What happened? Well, what happened was is that you were not looking carefully at how you walked. And now you've lost your way. You didn't understand what the will of the Lord was and, and understanding in the sense of not just, just cognitively, uh, intellectually knowing it, but then actually living it out. It seems right in the moment for that young Christian girl to date her non-Christian boyfriend. I mean, they are in love and he's so nice and life is just so much more pleasant with this person and 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 and, and there's no christian guys around that 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 like me and, and and it would be just so hard and painful if we just broke up and so they plunge headlong into that relationship never mind that the wisdom of god the will of god says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers but but after all i, I can use this as a witnessing opportunity right and 30 years later he hasn't come to christ and he's bitter about your church involvement. You long for a godly husband to lead you and teach your kids in the way of the Lord. And, and he'd just rather sit on the couch and drink beer and watch football. It seemed right at first, but you didn't look carefully at how you walked. You didn't listen to what the Apostle Paul said. You weren't interested in understanding the will of the Lord. 
It doesn't mean that that God can't come in and redeem any of those examples that I just gave. He, he can do that, and sometimes he does. But you should not be presumptuous and fragrant, uh, flagrantly stiff arm his will and his precepts because you don't think they apply in your unique circumstance. In those moments, when you do that, you really don't seek to understand the will of the Lord. Maybe you understand it here, but not here. And so you end up learning the hard way, the bitter lesson of Proverbs 14, 12, that says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. But there is a better way to go. And it's outlined in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts. Do not lean on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You see, the way of folly seems pleasant and easy and good in the beginning, but it's end its death. The way of wisdom, though perhaps seeming harder and tougher and more painful initially, its end is healing and refreshment. Maybe not physically, but, but where it counts most, spiritually, in your heart, in your conscience, in your relationship with God. You see, we have to stop trying to interpret reality and our circumstances and the decisions that we face based on our own wisdom and perception and feelings, based on what seems right to us. We can't trust our senses and we can't trust our own wisdom. Our perception of reality, unaided by God's word, will lead us astray every single time. Jesus' disciples perceived a way that seemed right to them. And that way was that Jesus would not be crucified. Whenever Jesus talked about his imminent death, they got angry. They resisted it. They even threatened that this would never happen. In fact, when Jesus was arrested, one of his disciples drew his sword in an attempted rescue mission. How everything unfolded to these disciples seemed wrong. They did not seek to understand the will of the Lord because their way and their will seemed so right. And it seemed like what Jesus was doing was foolishness. And yet in Jesus, we see the exact opposite attitude. Just moments before his arrest, Jesus is in the garden praying. And Jesus knew way more than his disciples knew just how hard and how painful things were going to get. And human wisdom would say, this is ridiculous. I'm an innocent man. I don't deserve to be arrested and executed like a criminal. Don't deserve to be crucified. What's coming is the hardest and most excruciating suffering possible. I'm out of here. That's human wisdom. And that's the, the wisdom that his disciples wanted him to operate by. But Jesus is exemplary of the truly wise person, the biblically wise person. He does not operate according to human wisdom. And so in the garden, he prays, Father, if it is not possible, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. And then he says, but not my will, but yours be done. That is the careful walk. That is wisdom. That is understanding. That is trusting in God's will and God's ways, no matter what. That's the wise walk. If Jesus had operated in a way that we often do, he would have said, 
not your will, but mine be done, and would have taken the easier path, would not have gone to the cross, and, and, and it would have seemed right to all of us. And in the end, it would have led to eternal death in hell for every single one of us. But instead, Jesus does not listen to the counsel and the wisdom of the wicked. He understands what the will of the Lord is, and he delights in it. He, he said, my food and my drink are to do the will of my father. And God's will takes Jesus down the most difficult path imaginable. He is mocked and tortured and beaten. He is unjustly condemned. He is nailed to a piece of wood and left hanging to bleed and die, abandoned by almost all of his friends. And worst of all, abandoned by God. As Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself, the sins of fools like us, fools who disregarded God's way, fools who didn't care about understanding what the will of the Lord is, uh, fools who couldn't, who couldn't care less about redeeming the time, uh, uh, fools who have rebelled against him. Those sins were taken from his people and put on Jesus so those sins could be punished in him. Jesus was no fool, but he was treated as the fool deserves to be treated because he willingly chose to be the substitute for fools so that any fool who would repent of their foolishness and simply have faith and trust in Jesus would be saved from God's wrath and forgiven of all of their foolishness. And the abandonment of Jesus by God on the cross turned out to be only temporary. After Jesus paid the price for sins, God vindicated Jesus's innocence by raising him from the grave, conquering death on behalf of all of his people, guaranteeing our glorious resurrection in the age to come. Avoiding the cross seemed right to human wisdom, but in the end would have led to death. Embracing the cross seen like foolishness according to human wisdom, but if you receive such foolishness, it turns out to be life itself. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on to write, where is the one who is wise? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Your whole Christian life began by embracing something the world deemed utterly foolish and ridiculous. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 here is telling us that you're going to move forward in the Christian life by continuing to walk in that way, by continuing to turn away from the things that seem right to man but lead to death and to keep instead moving towards those things that are strange and foolish in the eyes of the world, but in the end turn out to be wisdom from God that will bring healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. Redeeming the time, 
not being foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy and inspired word. And I pray that you would help us now to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, understanding what your will is and living it out as we pay close and careful attention to how we walk for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.